Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So, Matt, how's the developing story coming along? You mean our newest program for... Uh, teens who have grown up in an alcoholic household to write about their experiences? Yes, that. How's that, it developing? That developing story? How's it developing? The developments <laughs> on the developing story are good. No, we've we've gotten a lot of interest, a lot of people talking about it, and a lot of people, uh, you know, just, just saying, hey, that's a great idea. We don't have a lot of people signed up, though. So there is room. We want to be really clear about this, that the the expressing interest process, the enrollment process, includes an opportunity to meet with Catherine, our daughter, who is running the developing story, along with one of us, and get all your questions answered and just see if it might be a good fit. So you can express interest without making any commitment. Do you know how to do that, Sherry? Um, would they email you? No, they would go to thedevelopingstory.org. The webpage that we have created, developingstory.org, will give you all the initial information you need. It'll There's a link to the podcast episode that we did with Catherine so that you can listen to her story and see if she's the kind of person you might be able to relate to. And then at the bottom, there is an opportunity to share your name and email address and start the enrollment process. Again, no commitment, just uh, getting an opportunity to... Meet with us and um, decide if it might be a good fit. I think it's interesting because it took us a good nine months to get this program off the ground. And it was because we were really, you know, because we're dealing with minors, we were really being very, very careful and talking to lots of experts uh, to make sure that we didn't mess this up. And now it seems that those who have expressed interest are being equally cautious mm. and, um, you know, like I said, lots of people have said, this is great. Um, it needs to happen, but uh, we're just slow getting uh, getting enrollments, to be perfectly honest. So um, we would love to have people join the group. It's it's a small group at this point, um, and Catherine's really excited about it. It's going to be a great opportunity to, and oh, one other thing I should mention, somebody asked yesterday, you know, how am I supposed to get my teenager who is just starting a new school year and hates homework interested in some in a writing class where they'll have more homework there will be no homework for the developing story all the writing will be done in session so you will join the zoom session and be given a writing prompt right right there on the spot and then uh, read to each other and have good discussions around the writing so no problem there no extra homework yeah that's always nice yeah, somebody asked us that yesterday. Somebody also asked us a listener question. Would you like to hear the listener question, Sherry? Sure. Great. And just to remind people, your answer earlier would be right in this case. If you can email you. That's right. If you would like to ask a listener question, just email me, matt at soberandunashamed.com to ask your email question. Here is the one we're going to address today. My husband has been sober from alcohol for this past year, but uses marijuana daily to manage anxiety, sleep issues, and PTSD. Can we truly recover if weed is the continued go-to? Now, we have addressed this marijuana question before, but I went ahead and went with this one because the person used the word we. Can we truly recover if weed is the continued go-to. And so I thought that was an important thing to address because as you and I have talked about, Sherry, there are three you know, components to this recovery process in a relationship. There is the person who's dealing with the addiction, dealing with their recovery. There is the loved one finding recovery. And then there is thirdly and separately and like further down the road, there is relationship recovery. So when this person asks, can we truly recover? My answer would be, you can, but the person using weed, they are not in recovery. They are not in sobriety. Not even close. Well, one thing that they mentioned that they, 
this um, sober from alcohol but using marijuana. I'm wondering if it's under a doctor's guise because it said PTSD or a therapist. I don't think so. The the email was you know I just read the question portion, but it was it was quite a bit more lengthy. And the person mentioned that they live in one of the many states now where recreational weed is legal. So I think this is a self-medication situation, yeah. very much so like the alcohol was self-medication. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts? Well, it just, it makes me furious that I was having a conversation with um, a 20-something yesterday. The Food and Drug Administration are considering lowering marijuana kind of to the status of alcohol. So therefore making it legal all the time. And it just makes me so upset because it's just another way to avoid dealing with things and self-medicating things. And the conversation from this 20, mid 20 something who's educated and is, you know, a really great person. They obviously have never struggled with any addiction, so they don't see the downside of it. But I said, you know, you don't have to be addicted to it to make things not happen like you don't have to feel feelings you can go and deal with it just like alcohol and you know tobacco is being elevated for ages in some states of purchase but then you have to be older to buy tobacco in some states yes and now we've got marijuana and maybe lessening because I think that it just it's one of those scary things it looks like it's the lesser of two evils because of the behavior patterns but that that recovery isn't going to happen, and it's still just avoiding your feelings and dealing with things. Yeah, you and I have, we disagree slightly on the legal aspect. I don't actually have a problem with it having the same legal status as alcohol, because I don't think the government mandating things ever works in almost any situation. But I, I do really fear the same as you, this kind of societal belief. You know, I do a I do a writing group with folks that have experienced homelessness and they are in a job training program, a culinary arts training program. It's a really a fantastic program and the people are really making progress and full of hope. And we talk a lot about alcohol addiction and other drug addiction in the writing group, but Almost everybody that I've ever met in that program thinks weed is harmless. So they talk about meth and opioids and alcohol as being the devil, but they all say, not all, I'm over, I'm exaggerating a little, but most of them are like, oh yeah, but who doesn't smoke a little weed here and there? So yeah, this idea that it's the solution to alcohol or the lesser of the evils, you're right. It's only the outward behavior that's But you different. just, you said, they smoke a little weed here and there. This person is doing on a daily basis. Oh, I think the people that I'm talking to that say they smoke a little weed here and there mean... <laughs> daily mean, basis. Mean a little bit right after work, and a little bit an hour <laughs> later, and a little bit a couple hours after that. And yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty, pretty consistent from the way they describe it. Yeah, so I just feel like... You know, just treat it and look at it just like alcohol yeah, the, or the, any other addiction. The, the big piece, the, the brain chemistry that needs to heal from an addiction where your pleasure neurotransmitters, your dopamine, your serotonin has been hijacked, that cannot improve as long as you're substituting one substance for another that interacts with those um, pleasure neurotransmitters in the same way. So... You your brain holds back dopamine when you're, you're an alcoholic for only when you drink alcohol. So you only get that little jolt of pleasure when you consume alcohol. And that is easily transferred to marijuana. So yes, when you talk about medicating or managing anxiety, sleep issues, and PTSD, the marijuana will be temporarily effective at that until it has the same hold that the alcohol eventually has. And then it, you know, any kind of self-medication with drugs is not going to work long-term. And, and it's actually going to end up being a cause of anxiety and sleep issues. And certainly not, you know, it'll give you that temporary relief for the PTSD, but it's certainly doing nothing like what therapy and, and other therapeutic interventions could do to actually deal with the PTSD. So it's a bad, bad idea. But yes, 
you know, can we truly recover? No, but you as the loved one, you can recover. You can set boundaries. You can detach uh, from the behavior that is unacceptable. And for me, I mean, there's there's no amount of marijuana that's okay if you've had an alcohol addiction. There just isn't. It's going to transfer. Uh, I wouldn't touch marijuana with a 8,000 foot pole because I would be afraid it it wouldn't be as immediate right because my my brain has stored knowledge of what to do with alcohol if I ever drink again there are thousands and thousands of cases of people who go years and years decades even in sobriety and then decide oh I'm cured I can drink again and then they try to drink again and they're as bad off as they were 20, 30 years ago, within a couple of days of drinking. I don't think the uh, transference is as immediate when you switch drugs of choice. It takes your brain a little while to figure out what this new substance is. But but yeah, you'll get there. You'll absolutely get there. And so all of this rubbish about people thinking you can't be addicted to weed and weed is harmless because it makes you sloth-like instead of angry like you are when you're drunk... Um, It's just garbage. So yes, you can recover, but it's going to be about you focusing on you. Uh, Join a group like Echoes of Recovery, something like that. Um, Work work on boundaries and detachment and uh, figure out a way to get healthy yourself. The the weed smoker is not uh, on a path to health. They just aren't. I'm a little defiant about this. I guess I'm... This comes up a lot and I'm frustrated. Because mm-hmm. people think it's okay and it's not. Um, one last thing that this this uh, listener question submitter, this person, um, shared with us. They asked if we could address addiction more generally because we so often refer specifically to alcohol addiction. And I'm going to just respectfully say no, we can't. And the reason is we aren't trained psychologists or therapists in addiction in a general sense. We aren't psychologists therapists at all. We are lived experience people. <clears throat> Pardon me. And our lived experience is alcohol. So it would be, um, you know, sometimes we do, you know, we've learned enough, we've read enough, we've met with enough people. Sometimes we do generalize things to addiction, but only when we're really comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um most of what we talk about is alcohol-related because that's what we know. And most of the people that we work with are most, not most, all of the people that we work with are dealing with an alcohol addiction. So that's the world we live in. I wish I, I wish I could give you more comfort by generalizing, but I think that would be insincere to do that. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of other pieces. I mean, addiction, there are a lot of overlapping, but I think we are not knowledged... Um, enough to share addiction with other drugs. I mean, we have had sidebar discussions about transferred addictions, secondary addictions, you know, whether it be work or gaming and things like that. But we talk about those using other people's knowledge. So we just have to focus on the alcohol and what happened with us and our lives. Yeah. That's what this is all about. Sherry, The title for this episode is about being happy in the middle. The middle's a good place. I never would have thought that when I was younger, but, you know, 80% of Americans are in the middle politically. That statistic is just completely pulled out of my ass, but it's pretty close. (laughs) The vast majority of Americans are in the middle politically, and we get all the noise from the the fringes that, uh, that takes up all of the the news cycle and takes up all of our cable news time. Speaking of which, the offer still stands. If we have listeners who would like to hear us talk about the impact of cable news on alcohol addiction, just send us a listener question about that. We have uh, we have gotten a couple, but um, we need to to know that people really want us to talk about this. Or topic. if they have a really unique or a a really profound story or yeah, funny story. story or unique story or something of that nature. About somebody standing in front of the television and screaming at it. Yeah. I think that's what cable news did for us. But anyway, 80% of Americans are in the middle politically, something like that. Maybe it's 90, maybe it's 70. It's it's up there. 
The biggest economic threat is the collapse of the middle class, Sherry. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're worried about that middle class, which you and I occupy, happily occupy room in. Jan and Peter, they were the most well-adjusted Brady's, and they were in the middle. Come on, the episodes about them were lame because their problems were minor. George Glass. She yeah. created a boyfriend. That's what I'm talking about. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't as big as, you know, uh what were the other Brady's? What was the Bobby Brady? and Cindy, Greg and Greg. Marcia. Yeah. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. So yeah, Gian and Peter, most well adjusted Brady's, they were in the middle. Goldilocks doesn't like the bed that's too hard or too soft. Goldilocks like the middle bed. Just it was right. Just right. A macro analysis of alcoholic relationships would show that there is a divergence of how the pendulum swings for us folks. You, Sherry, you keep your pendulum firmly in the middle. Good job. I think that serves you well. Actually, we're going to talk about how sometimes you don't always. But it is mostly, you know, the pendulum. And the pendulum can be referring to joy, happiness, sadness. It can be... Uh, referring to how much excitement you need in your life, how much risk, how much stress, all of these things. So a macro analysis of alcoholic relationships would show a divergence in how the two partners keep their pendulum. Have I confused you enough yet? Yeah, well, it's kind of scary. Like people want stress and risk in their life. Ooh, that is not me. I am definitely on the other side of... The low side of that. Yeah, well, let's get there. In in the college, both of our pendulums were swinging wildly. Uh, You know, we were taking risks. We were staying up late. We were, you know, breaking into the football stadium just to drink on the 50-yard line. We were doing stupid things that, you know, we were diving into the, the quarries. There were a lot of limestone quarries in southern Indiana where we went to school and hoping we didn't hit our head on a rock and doing it, you know, in the middle of the night and all kinds of risky behavior. And certainly, you know, when you talk about drinking college kids, there's risky sexual behavior that takes place, just all kinds of stuff. So that that pendulum is swinging wildly. Uh, You got your upside and then you got your hangover you got to deal with and you got to nurse and stay in a dark room and sleep off the next day and so that's the pendulum swinging wildly to the negative side you with me so far yes do you remember those days do you remember your pendulum swinging wildly sherry yes taking risks yes i remember that and then you settled down i think the term settling down refers to less wild pendulum swings that pendulum is just it's finding its spot it's just hunkering in the middle one of the things that we talk about sometimes, certainly on the podcast, and definitely talk about a lot in our Shout Sobriety group, is a concept that I think was best illustrated in the book Dopamine Nation uh, by Dr. Anna Lemke. And she talks about the fact that our brains are constantly seeking homeostasis or equilibrium. Our brains are constantly trying to hunker down in the middle. And so when we have an experience that drives the pendulum wildly to one side, super exciting experience, super stressful experience, whatever that may be, the the pendulum isn't going to swing wildly to one side and then come back to the bottom. It's going to swing up to the other side. Um, You know, one, there's there's a great biological health example of this with our blood sugar. If you think of how blood sugar and insulin works. If you consume a lot of added sugar, like you spike your blood sugar, your pancreas, your brain and your pancreas working together don't know what the right amount of insulin to release to bring that blood sugar down is, so they just release it all. Your system gets flooded with insulin and your blood sugar drops dramatically. So you don't go from high blood sugar to normal blood sugar. You go from high blood sugar to low blood sugar. That's just kind of how our bodies work. And that's how our brains work, too. We go from excitement to depression because um, fine, you know, we're, we're trying to get to that middle, 
but it's hard to land in the middle when you've swung wildly to one side or the other. Is mm-hmm. any of this making sense? Yeah. You think I'm explaining it okay? No, I think you're... I mean, I've read bits and pieces of Dopamine Nation, so I know, and I've heard her on podcasts before, so I am I am understanding. Great. So, when I think back... Going back to the college thing again, you know, when I think back to my... I was in a fraternity, and my fraternity brothers, they're not all alcoholics. They did the same thing that I did in college. I didn't drink more than my fraternity brothers in college. There were no red flags back then. I wasn't, you know, the one staying up late or the one going to the bars three nights during the weekend. Or, I mean, they were right there with me. I wasn't the biggest drinker in my fraternity. But what happened is they settled down. They became accountants and sales managers and family people and... They still drink a few beers on the weekend, but it's literally a few beers. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm sure some of them are alcoholics, but the majority of them just kind of settled down. And the difference for me is I kept chasing the good side of the pendulum swing, the excitement, the risk, the, the thrill, the stuff so it wasn't necessarily about alcohol. That's the point that I'm making. I wasn't, I wasn't like, let me see if I can drink more than my neighbors as I became an adult and you and I got married and, and quote, settled down. I wasn't like, oh, you know, when we go to this, this barbecue at our friend's house down the street, I want to see if I can stay well past the invitation, you know, stated time on the invitation and make sure that we drain that that beer cooler. I'm not leaving until that's drained. It wasn't, I didn't set out to be obnoxious. Um, but I did have more of a thirst for excitement. And, um, you know, once I got started drinking, it just fueled that. It fueled that. And I wanted that pendulum to swing really high, um, on the one side. You, you definitely settled down. You know, you were wild. You were doing crazy stuff in college and then you know we got we had real jobs we got married and you settled down um and I didn't and because alcohol was so often a part of my living on the edge and excitement and thrill and all of that I think it's easy to look at alcohol as the source alcohol was just the fuel on the fire that was already there does that make sense? Yeah. I've never really thought of it that way. But I know. Alcohol, that's why it's so exciting to talk about these things on the so podcast. you're saying, like, you were chasing a high that was a feeling and that alcohol just was your way to hopefully get there or just what you had normally done with that. Like, you were missing the excitement and the fun and the carefree from college days. I don't know about carefree. Not carefree. Like, because here's why this is important. I continue to battle this today, even though I haven't had anything to drink in six and a half years. I, I struggle with the mundane. I struggle with the middle. I want... To run faster, jump higher. <laughs> Not literally. <laughs> <laughs> this is you trying to be million dollar man. <laughs> I want something exciting to happen. And that can be, it can be, you know, it's sad. It's pathetic. But sometimes that can be work really. I can be like, let me see if I can accomplish this goal. I can't, I, I, I struggle mightily to say, look. I'm putting in my 40 hours and we got enough money and that's all that should matter. It's not my job to fix things or fix the world or fix my town or fix my community that I'm involved in. My job is to punch the clock, do it with a smile on my face, you know, uh, accomplish the things that I have agreed to do and move on. I, I have, you know, and... And the same goes true, and I think it's hard for a lot of alcoholics in early sobriety. You know, Friday night, Saturday night, I I don't want to go to bed at 9.30 at night or 10 o'clock at night, you know, watch a movie and call it good. I do, 
And I do, I do see the benefit in that. I find peace in that. But peace isn't the driving factor for me. And that is the problem. Excitement, risk, stress, those are the driving factors. It's kind of pathetic, isn't it? Grown-ass man. Can't, can't focus on peace. You're very good at focusing on peace and contentment, calm. Are those things thrilling for you? No. Like the things you were describing? No. Peace, contentment, calm. Oh. Well, they're not thrilling. Of course not. They wouldn't be peace and contentment and calm if they were thrilling. They're, they're a really good feeling to have. Can you describe it? Uh, yeah, I, I just tried to, I'm trying to think of like when you were saying, I don't want to go to bed early on the weekends or at a normal time on that watching a movie just isn't enough, you know, um, it makes me kind of think of like the days when you were drinking cause you were, you would do that, but then you would be drinking and you would drink more and more to try to like. I think, to try to fill up that empty spot that wasn't there. And if it's a movie that, like, say when the kids were younger and we were watching and it was a family movie and they were going to bed earlier because they're little kids, you know, you always wanted to have something spectacular to go on. And I, you, you couldn't even, like, really pinpoint what you wanted. So I think that made the relationship part frustrating for you. So then you just always, like, kind of turn to, like, well, then it has to be sex because there wouldn't be anything else that you and I would do together here at our house after the kids went to bed. That's an excellent point. I I don't think, just like I don't think alcohol is necessarily the the culprit or the, the thing, there's something else that's the thing, I think the same holds true for sex. You're right. When you're young parents, you've got kids, uh, you know, asleep, for the, the night, you can't, I mean, yeah, you can arrange in advance and have a babysitter and go to a concert or something like that. And that would fit the need as well, except I was very cheap. Um, and we, you know, we had times where money was really tight. So yeah. it's not even just me being cheap. We just didn't have a lot of disposable income. So when it's late at night and you're right, that hole is there, that need for something need for something exciting to happen and you can't go anywhere because you, you, you're there with your kids and you're being responsible parents, then yeah, let's do something exciting sex-wise is the only real option. So you're right, I think. And that caused all kinds of problems in our relationship. But it wasn't that I was some sex-starved sex fiend, although yeah. I've called myself that before and, and I've degraded myself and I've spent many hours processing that and feeling bad about myself and feeling guilty about myself. But I think it's less about the sex and more about I'm trying to get that pendulum swinging high and I can't, you know, I can't go break into the football stadium and drink on the 50 yard line as a parent with a job and kids and a wife. Like that's, I was, I was mature enough to cross some things off my list, Mm -hmm. but not mature enough to find contentment in peaceful, find joy in peaceful contentment. Yeah. Is that making sense? Yeah. I mean, like, in those scenarios, we could have, you know, gone to the back porch or the front porch and, you know, we would have had the baby monitor. We could have sat and chatted or played like a two-person card game, I remember. You know, you know it's but so you're funny. like, no way. Or cribbage. That's you right. Know, something like, you're like, no way. Something that would be like using our brain and intellect or, you know, maneuvering skills or whatever. I don't know what was wrong with me, but I was so against any kind of game. We play games now. We don't play games a lot, but we We don't play games anymore because our boys stink. Well, they get mad. They get mad. They're competitive. And it's not fun. But I didn't then because I equated that with being a loser. Yeah. Board games? What? Like, that's all you got? And I, I I didn't even try. I didn't even try. So you're right. You could find games that challenge your brain and create conversation. And there's all kinds of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But I looked at that as that's what losers do. Mm-hmm. So judgmental. So. Let's. Well, I was just going to say, I think. Please. Like, 
for me, now I can say that it's really easy to crave the calm because of the chaos that we had. Um, and I have always, I guess, been okay being a little bored. Um, and I know that you look at it like when I'm a little bored, then I'm like, "Mm, well, I'll dust the shelves on the china cabinet or something. You know, I look at it like I'm not trying to idle away my boredom because I'm also okay doing that with like no sound around me. You know, I don't have to have my head filled with something. But I look at it like boredom inspires creativity a little bit. And because I am not super creative in some areas, like cleaning or like the rearranging. I mean, I won't say I go crazy anymore and get into painting because I understand I just that I'm older and I don't have that sort of energy where it would be okay to bring out the paint and repaint a room on a bored weekend. I still have, like, desire to want to do that, like in our small bathroom, but, oh, good God, that just seems like a nightmare with the cleanup and the, you know. Um, But I think that I've been okay with being a little bored my whole life. Yeah. And I would just play with my Barbies or play with my stuffed animals or go on a walk or... I think that's a big part of the point. You've been okay with that your whole life. So this, so what we're talking about is not about alcohol. It's about personalities and it's about, mm, you know, kind of risk seeking characteristics and excitement seeking characteristics that don't serve us particularly well. And alcohol becomes an accomplice and it becomes an unsustainable, detrimental, awful accomplice that makes us say horrible things and do things we shouldn't and just make all kinds of life mistakes and make life miserable for our partners. But the point is, and I you know, I think some people will listen to this and be like, what the fuck are these two talking about? Or what is Matt talking about and dragging Sherry into? Because they're in the heat of it, right? They're in the midst. Like, uh, the alcoholic is still drinking and still calling their spouse names and their spouse is firing names back and they're considering potentially divorce and they're thinking about all the ways that the relationship is connected. They've got kids and they're financially intertwined and they're, how could, you know, how could I move on? And somebody who's in that state is going to listen to this episode. They probably stopped listening by now because they're like, Look, I'm fighting a fire. What are you talking about? And I get that. But anyone who's further along and is trying to understand the aftermath and is still trying to repair because they've got a sober alcoholic on their hands who still finds no peace and contentment, this one's for you. Because this is this is what's really behind it. I, I thought about this. You know how many people that we meet where the alcoholic has a uniqueish job, they are they own their own business. Um, they do something that's a little riskier. Uh, they're an independent contractor. they're you know, something that's not safe and stable. They don't they're yeah. looking for they're like, there is a there's a threshold that they have to meet. And whether it's a bad threshold of the drinking and the chaos and the causing the argument, it's like, it's electrifying. Like, all I can imagine is, like, they're being electrified. Because there are is an addiction to toxic relationships. That, whether it's good or bad, exciting, you know, I guess that's maybe why there are people that are into... Maybe some kinky sex and S and M and stuff because it like it's a risk versus reward like and it's would it be adrenaline and they're using adrenaline in place of dopamine so even if they're drinking and causing arguments and there's the chaos the alcoholic <coughs> has like this adrenaline rush when things get intense. I wonder if it's flooding in the brain. I don't know. This is where, like, the brain chemistry. Yeah. And so it's meeting the need. Or, like, for example, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but no, for no. example, um, just speaking with a therapist um, 
recently they were talking about procrastination. And so we're trying to, um, the conversation was around like modification and uh, monitoring and time limits and setting aside time and they translated it how it would be better in the long run for like bigger projects in your school or college work where how people get that rush from procrastinating because there is a level of um, chemicals that flood your brain and he, I, he didn't say which chemical it is but floods your brain so you have this excitement and this rush to get things done in a procrastination way and then if you have a good result because you get an A in the project or it comes out well you're not understanding time management skills. You're not understanding modifying and, and having a space and regulating and scheduling for that project. So you're just getting that. And I know our daughter, and I'm not, she didn't say it on the podcast, but she's told us many times how there was the rush of procrastination when she was in high school because she had a pretty heavy academic load, but she got a rush out of that. So I wonder if it's something on that same level, whether it's good behavior or bad behavior. I don't know. I, I know that's a thing. 100% there are people that, like, procrastination is their, their, you know, that's not a rare thing that happens sometimes. That is their thing. And that is, they operate best under that level of under pressure. That pressure. This is, for me, anyway, this is different because I don't procrastinate at all. Right, you don't. Like... I'm on the other end. The pendulum has swung too far the other way. Like when something new comes in, I want to get it done. And cause I don't want anything to pile up. I already feel like the pile is too big and stresses me out when something new tries to work its way onto my pile of crap. Yeah. I don't want anything new added to my pile of crap, but I, I do think like I am just uncomfortable with Calm. I'm un. Here, here's some examples. I I wrote down. You know, we. I started right out of college for ten years. I worked for a big company, and uh, had a salary, and knew how much money we were going to make every month. And you, same thing. You worked for companies and had salaries, and we knew what you were going to make. You were actually. A little riskier when you got your culinary degree and you were working in restaurants. That was much more um, unsure, unsettling, unsettled as far as income is concerned than where I was at the time. I mean, I was getting a paycheck twice a month and I knew how much it was going to be, right? Mm -hmm. And did that for 10 years. And then left that. And ever since I left that, um, that's when this kind of spiral started. We, 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 uh, bought a bakery and ran a bakery and you, you don't get a paycheck. You get to see what's left at the end of the month and see if there's anything for you and your family or not. And at the same time as we started a bakery, we started a family. And so the responsibility went up while the security went down. And then we went from that, um, you know, what we do now, we depend on grant money and we depend on donations. And so we are soliciting support from people for this nonprofit that we run. And, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, cry in my milk about it. Cry in my what? That's not right. Cry in my beer. Whatever. I'm not going to cry about it because it's been good to us. But there's still so much insecurity. You know, I think all the time about, like, a lot of the funding for our organization comes from one specific grant. And I think a lot what if they have a change of of heart a change of direction and decide that they want to fund different things whew that will be a huge setback for us or what if what if people stop you know the individual donors and supporters decide they're done with us because we talk about boring things on the podcast <laughs> and they're out you know that would be that would be really stressful and difficult but I you know I thrive putting myself in these these career situations, you know, and then the, the kind of hobby job that I have. I mean, I do get paid as a high school soccer coach, but it's very similar to volunteering <laughs> the amount that I get paid. So that one's not about money, but that is about psychology. And like when you're coaching, not playing, it's all a chess match. Like, how can I make all these pieces fit together? And I get tied up in knots about it. 
I wonder sometimes why you're not like, oh my God, why are you so stressed about this? It doesn't matter. I just think you're a loving, caring, wonderful person. And you know that, that it's about the kids and nurturing the kids. Yeah, I was going to say, it's about the kids. But it's not just about the kids for me. It's about the strategy and the, the chess pieces and making it work. And you want to be successful there. And so that weighs heavily on you. It does. You said last night, afraid if they don't, if they don't understand and do what I am trying to show them to do, because you've had success with your game plan in the past, then you're fearing that you're going to get run out on a rail, I think was your exact (laughs) quote from high school. They need to get it soon or they're going to turn on me and the parents are going to turn on me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's a but but that's what I'm saying. Like I wonder is maybe it's not procrastination, but maybe it's a fulfillment and excitement and there's so like there's gotta be some chemical release that even if it is a downside, there's gotta be something that's fueling it for it's you and the others. It might be adrenaline, it might be other stuff. I don't know. Cause there I mean, just think about like you said, so many of our people that we meet that are alcoholics <clears throat> have these either high pressured or special and unique and very self-reliant sort of jobs. And that causes a lot of stress because we hear that all the time. Everybody's always like, well, they drink because they have a stressful job. Everybody has a stressful job. But if you're living in that mindset of even if it's not your job that's stressful, you're bringing other things in that's stressful because you're liking that risk-reward thing or you're bringing your hobbies you know, that are stressful and the pressure you put on yourself... Like, it just yeah. seems to me like there's got to be, there's, you know, obviously a connection. Whenever there is too much stability, I, I like look for what's the, you know, what can I add? What, what's, and I don't do this on a conscious level. <laughs> I but, had, yeah, this is what I just laugh at because like you're working on a master's degree that's online and I'm like, oh, well this is a great time to do it. Like, you know, yeah. I thought, would you even have an extra 10 minutes to squeak no, out? it's. It's a lot more than 10 minutes. It's, <laughs> well, I'm, just, it's a, I'm saying, do you have 10 minutes? No, you don't have this. That's a great example. That's a great example. Um, I just... Whether you use the word boredom or calm or peacefulness or whatever, I just am not comfortable there. And that is the work of recovery for me. Getting comfortable there. And just saying, look, whatever it is I'm doing, it's enough. If, if if I start to feel contentment, then I, I start to think, oh, I'm not doing enough. There's got to be something. And again, these are these are things that happen in the back of the mind. These aren't... Right. I don't really think that. I just think, oh, huh, I feel pretty stable. Um, what more can I contribute to the, to the world? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nasty place to live. I'm, it's not good. And I think there's... I think... You know, there are people that drink for different reasons, certainly. Different underlying causes abound. But for many, many, many of us, this is what it is. We aren't comfortable unless that pendulum is swinging wildly. And when the pendulum swings wildly, there is there are massive repercussions. There's big time, you know, when the pendulum swings to the dark side, it hurts and it's hard. And so we're looking for ways... To medicate, not stabilize it, but medicate it. And that's where the drinking comes in. You you often throughout this, you know, life that we've spent most of it together now, you often need reassurances of stability because I think you are comfortable when the pendulum is just hanging limply in the middle and is peaceful and contented. And so... You know, like I see, like you, you are the children's minister at our church and you are also, you work in the preschool and I hear you tell stories and they're just joyful stories of playing with kids and, and getting the most out of them and, and seeing their little smiles and the goofy things that they do. And I struggle to find joy in that. I find, I, I. I think your stories are cute and I, and it makes me happy that you're happy, but I would be thinking, you know, what can we do to motivate these kids and these little preschoolers? What, how can we get them potty trained faster? How, 
How can we get them to not wipe their nose on their sleeve? <laughs> and you're just like, oh, it's so cute. So and so wipe their nose. You know, I don't know. I don't know. You're you're very happy. But okay. So um I need to keep moving along here. Your problem, Sherry, because I can't be the only one with a problem, your problem is what you have recently described as obliger rebellion. You push stuff down until you explode. Yes? Yeah, I I feel like I have addressed that a lot better since I learned about that a few years ago. Where did the obliger rebellion come from? So there's a Gretchen Rubin. She did some writings for Better Homes and Garden, The Happier Project. Also, she has a podcast called Happier. Um, she has a, several books, and one of them is called The Four Tendencies. And we read that as a church staff. And there's the obliger, which I am. So they're motivated by doing things for others um, and not so much themselves. The upholder, which does things for others and themselves, but themselves doing things for themselves is a higher level. The questioner um, is a tendency that... Like, it's not like you ask a lot of questions, you want a lot of information, and you're a seeker and a knowledge seeker. Um, and then the rebel. And the rebels are very sort of small percentage of people and unique. Most of us are obligers. Shocker, most women are obligers. <laughs> Based on societal, from going back to Adam and Eve, I'm sure, the way we were treated, that we were obligers. So the obliger rebellion is like Do doing think- and doing and doing, but then you don't like address and you don't have boundaries and you can't state, you can't say no and those sort of things and trying to meet everybody else's needs, pushing yours aside and eventually you explode. Do you think it's all a result of the patriarchy and, and culture and society and the, the, the role that you've been driven into? Or do you think that there is natural genetic hormonal predisposition to being an obliger. I think that it is a combination. Like when I agree. when I was reading these, I thought, "Oh my gosh, I do I do find myself asking questions not nearly to God as much as you. Thank God because I would probably just die if I asked that many questions." <laughs> of God? <laughs> no, you're always like, "Ah, Oh. Why is that? Why is that? And I have to remember, oh, he's just trying to seek more information. But I do ask a lot of questions, but I think, gosh, if I hadn't become a mother, would I be more like a questioner? Would that have been my normal tendency? But also, like, growing up in my house, like, my sister, older sister was the troublemaker, so I tried not to cause any waves, you know? So I think it can be a big combination of things. I think, and the point of the book was you just have natural tendencies that you lean to, and I think, I think you can have overlapping or, or things change and make you a different person. Like I did the other, the, the other uh, test. Enneagram? Uh, Enneagram. And I did it before you were in recovery and getting sober and before the work we're doing now. And I did it recently and I've changed. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the other thing, whenever we talk about anything that's a gender role, gender component, we always recognize that just because there is our majority tendencies doesn't mean that people don't fall outside of that. We definitely know um, women, for instance, for whom that wildly swinging pendulum is a really driver and peace and contentment is not where they want to be. And they wouldn't fit necessarily into the obliger role. So yeah. And we know guys that do fit into the obliger role. So mm-hmm. there are, you know, uh, lots of outliers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And these but, are just general broad terms. But I thought it was really interesting because there are a lot of times where I say yes, 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 do, 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 and don't address them. This was more in the past. I feel like I've gotten much better. Like for work. Things Like, I would just keep working, keep doing, keep, oh, well, that's not exactly what we wanted. I would do it again. And, you know, or I would say yes too many times. And then I'd be in my mind like, well, if we did it a different way, it would probably work better. And we wouldn't be reinventing the wheel. And then I would explode and I would come home to you and be like, oh, you know, throwing a fit. Maybe not. Or I would say something really snarky and shitty. 
to my coworker. Mm-hmm. And just because, mic drop and walk away. And... Yeah. And then, you know, kind of like a, and not talk about it, but that was not the real problem. It was because I was stuffing down my well, and opinions we, or insights. We talk about the stuffing down and how that manifests in our relationship. You are so comfortable in that the pendulum's not swinging wildly zone in that peace and contentment zone that you don't want to make waves. And part of that comes as a defense mechanism that you learned during my active addiction when making waves could mean fighting for three days, right? Making waves could mean me screaming at you and cursing at you and, and disrupting the kids. So there is, again, there's probably a predisposition. There's a genetic component, but there's also learned behavior there. And so you don't want to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes when it comes to our relationship, there are issues where you stuff down and stuff down and stuff down, even to this day, until it explodes out. And again, I'm just, I'm, I'm not saying this to be critical. I'm just trying to identify the two comfort zones that you and I live in and how different they are. Again, my comfort zone is, uh, you know, oh, did I accidentally get comfortable for a minute? That can't happen. What's, you know, what's, what's the next thing that I can run toward that'll cause me some anxiety? I'm imagining which is awful. you like on these plate spinning sticks. Yeah. Like one of them can't, you know, you're constantly like spinning plates. And this is, by the way, this is stuff that when you're in active addiction, you can't have these thoughts. Yeah, you can't they don't see work. it. I, I am hyper aware of this because I have been on under extra stress lately and I have, I can't tell I've never, I've not come close to drinking at all, not even remotely close to drinking, but I have become hyper aware of, oh, this is where I would have drank or, oh, here I am. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. I've got this stuff I've got to deal with that I do not want to deal with and it's going to be awful, it, but if I am hyper aware of back in back in my drinking days, I would have thought, listen, if I can just get to eight o'clock tonight, I can drink and I'll be happy. And that would have completely shifted my mindset. It's three o'clock. I got five hours of shit to trudge through and then I can drink. And now one of the challenges of sobriety, and maybe this is the mistake that it's taken us 52 minutes to get to this main point and maybe nobody's listening anymore, but this is the challenge of recovery for a lot of us. You're, it's three o'clock. You got five hours of shit to trudge through and there's no happy ending coming. There's no reward. There's no reward. There's no relief. Because contentment no and being job well done or day well done is not enough of a reward. It's not. And it's not. And Is this the, when people could maybe... I'm sorry, just... To make it really little, is this when people might say, like, this is the dry drunk behavior because there's this disruption at 8 o'clock and this anxiety and this mood that walks in and they're like, oh, it's dry drunk behavior? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I know, I know that alcohol serves multiple purposes for those of us when we're in active addiction you know, sometimes, and, and this is well documented, alcohol is a stimulant before it's a depressant. So sometimes I would, if I was doing computer work at home, you know, I would, I would drink while I was working because nobody could see and it would actually give me the energy to get mm -hmm. through the end of the thing. And it would be rewarding. And it would be rewarding. But it's often, I think, the biggest role that it serves is as that transition piece to, oh, okay. You're not responsible for anything anymore. You can shut it all down and just relax. And it does, again, there is, for me, a euphoric feeling with alcohol. So it is a reward. It is a relief. It is, you know, if if the the thing you're running toward when you're trying to get through that five hours of shit is, is just nothing, is just calm, is contentment, and you don't get any boost from contentment that's really 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 hard right mm -hmm. I remember when I was in very quite early sobriety 
we went on a trip. It was our annual trip to Indiana and the Indianapolis 500. And the night before the race, we were at a graduation party for a, a friend of ours, that friend's son, who is we're also very close with. It was all people that we're very close with. And everyone was drinking except for me. And I don't remember if you were drinking or not. And um, But nobody was going crazy. I wasn't drinking because uh, I was on One of the advice. things that we learned with this group is... It was actually me that was the only one that went crazy, and <laughs> nobody drank very much when I stopped drinking, and it wasn't out of just politeness. They just weren't big drinkers, and... We had all settled up. Everyone settled else settled me. down. That's right, except for me. But anyway, so there was drinking happening, but I wasn't drinking, and I was in new, new sobriety, and I remember at, after that, you recounted that as a really nice evening, afternoon, evening, night and you really enjoyed my company and it really hurt you when I said down the road that that was miserable for me. Mm-hmm. It it wasn't miserable because the company was bad. It was miserable because I wasn't chasing that excitement thing, you know, and I just didn't know how to deal with contentment. We were sitting around catching up after having been apart for a whole year and there just wasn't enough in that for me. And I, I'm getting better in those situations. Certainly in social situations, I am able to find joy without the excitement. Um, but I remember that is a really great example of the contrast between your brain and my brain. And, and I'm sorry that I know that that really hurt you that I didn't, that I told you that I was miserable in that moment. Well. Huh. You don't need to apologize. You were just truthful. But it, to me, it looked like you were having a good time. So I felt hurt. But then I also, like now, I just felt really sad for, yeah. for you. Yeah. That it was fun and we were laughing and we were having, you know, like connection experiences with these people. And it just didn't matter to you. It, it did, just not enough. Just, it wasn't yeah. enough. It wasn't enough. And that's, I mean, that is the work of recovery. Once you get past the period where the cravings for alcohol are gnawing at you all the time, once you get some new habits ingrained and six o'clock at night, you don't automatically think about alcohol. Once you get past that, and, and that's, you know, usually past the first year, the work of recovery is finding peace with contentment, finding joy in peace and contentment. And it is not easy, but you know, there's evidence that this isn't just the ramblings of one sober alcoholic lunatic. All the major religions are really foundationally grounded in living in the moment. Don't beat yourself up too much about the past. Don't worry much about the future because you can't control the future. You know, the Buddhists get, have the corner on the market of being known for, uh, focusing on living in the present, but really all Christianity to all of them, a foundational component of their religious practices, just being content in the present. And so again, it's not just me. Mm -hmm. It's not just you who's good at it. This is, this is what all, this is what, you know, our spiritual leaders from around the globe believe to be important. And it's de- it definitely is my work. I've got a, you know, we've got a we've got a friend who talks about how her husband, when he goes on vacation, he, you know, he stresses so much getting ready for vacation, and she makes jokes. He works for the city of Denver, and she says, "I don't know how Denver is going to be able to operate when you are on vacation," and that sticks with me, and that's important for me to internalize and say, all these stupid plates that I've got spinning. This is all self-induced. The world will be fine without me. And I've got to stop trying, you know, thinking that, um, that, that there's anything more than just uh, being content with my family and trying to help those little humans grow up to be, to be happy people. And that's all. That's all. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. Whew! Yeah. 
Are we going to rename this podcast? Just start at minute 37. Just 30. <laughs> it was 52. Oh, okay. When we got to the real, the real meat, the meat and potatoes. potatoes. Yeah. Just start at 52. That's good, Sherry. Save everyone an hour. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.